It has been a pleasure for my wife and I to be here with you and uh, involved in your conference yesterday and uh, preaching today. We're very grateful. We've thoroughly enjoyed uh, all of you all. We've certainly enjoyed our time with your pastor and different uh, ones of the church that we've shared meals with. We did get a pretty awesome burrito today. Uh, and uh, that was very, uh, I don't know, I think I had some good thoughts about that by the time it was all over. But uh, just uh, thank you so much. Thank you for just your kindness and your open arms and uh, just everyone. I I realized, uh, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of places we go, well, uh, no matter what store you go in or just about anywhere, airports, you have to wear masks. But I would say that a lot of the churches we're in are very uh, much lax on that. It's sort of if you feel like you need it and if not. And, and so uh, I uh, really, we don't wear masks that much in church. We do whenever we feel like we need to or whenever they would ask us to. Uh, but I'm, I'm realizing that, uh, you, you know, you can't just smile at someone because they don't know what you're doing, right? And so they think you're being rude when they say hello and you smile. I mean, you sort of have to go through the whole motions, you know, I mean, the whole thing has got to be, got to be done or people are offended at that. So a lot of new stuff that we're learning as we go through this, but praise the Lord for it. If I have a theme that is the one to which I would always default in preaching, it would be to preach about my God. I love the whole book, but the whole book is him. And uh, tonight I want to talk to you really about our God and what the particular passage of scripture that we'll look at teaches us about how we should lift up his name and how that's to be done. If you have your Bible tonight, and I trust you do, if you'd open to Psalms 113 with me tonight. Psalms 113, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children, praise ye the Lord. I wanna pray with you this evening. Father, I thank you for our time. I thank you for all that you've been allowed and enabled us to be a part of this weekend. And certainly uh, we are honored to have been a part of your work in this place and just in awe of what you do and who you are. And uh, Lord, uh, just so grateful, just so, so grateful to you uh, for the work of the local church. And uh, Lord, for folks that have their shoulder to the wheel, even through all of this, and are just uh, with all of their heart, uh, trying to uh, press forward, declare the gospel, ex lift up your name, and, and to make a difference in people's life, to reach out with the hand of mercy and grace that is yours, and to, and to deal in your truth in people's lives. Lord, thank you uh, so very, very much for this church, and for its heart, and for its ministry. And uh, Lord, uh, pray for this time together tonight that as we just one more time while we'll be here, meet around the word of God, that God, you would bless it, you would, you would inhabit the praise of your people tonight, you would, uh, Lord, just, uh, you would move amongst us, you would draw our attention to such, a, to such a perfect focus on you tonight that we would be stirred just by who you are. Lord, help us uh, tonight to honor you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The 113th Psalm is uh, one of a set of collection of psalms. You probably heard it. There's nothing new under the sun, but, but it's one of, uh, of a set of psalms. Uh, some would say beginning in the 113th. I personally would back it up a little bit. But through the 118th, that, that were used in a very particular way. And they were used and sung and recited at the, at the great uh, festivals of the nation of Israel. 
when they were required to come to the temple uh, three times a year, all of the males, and they would uh, participate in those great feasts. They'd participate in the Passover feast and, the, and, the, uh, uh, and of course, the, uh, the feast of Sukkot, which is coming up soon, and, and the fall and the spring, and the, all the three times a year that they were coming. These psalms were an integral part of their worship, really from day to day, and the response to God during those times. I've spent more time perhaps in my uh, study in the 118th Psalm as I've focused in on the, on the uh, festival of Sukkot. And while I think all of these uh, Hallel Psalms, this group of Psalms, that's what they're called, we'll explain that or remind you of it in a moment. But I think uh, the 118th was very focused or used during the Feast of Tabernacles that actually is coming up very, very soon. I think October 4th or something like that, it begins. And this Psalm, uh, 118th Psalm, would have been used uh, there uh, a couple times a day. There were some tremendous ceremonies that went on there. There was one called the water libation ceremony when they would uh, do some things. And all of these ceremonies they would have during the feasts, in addition to the sacrifices and all that's prescribed in Scripture, all of them really did two things. They pointed back to what God had done for them, and they all pointed forward to the promise of the coming Messiah. In fact, it was during that time in one of those ceremonies, that particular uh, water uh, libation ceremony, at the end of which in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and says, uh, you know, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Uh, he that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he was really referencing directly what they were doing. And in fact, at that moment, as they would, uh, as they would uh, uh, pour out that water and, and, uh, and do those things that pictured the coming Messiah, they would sing from the 118th Psalm a particular verse that says, Come now, O Lord, and rescue us, calling upon him to send the Messiah. And it is then, it's just a wonderful story, a wonderful truth. It is at that moment, as they've sung that verse, and they've begged God to send the Messiah, that Jesus stands up and says, Oh, by the way, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. And so these psalms were used that way. They were also used, according to uh, what we read uh, in those, they were particularly used as, as responsive singing. And it would go back and forth between the Levites who would lead, of course, through the choirs and worship and the congregation of the people that would be gathered there. And you would understand congregation, or I'm sorry, responsive reading for sure. Maybe you do that from time to time. The pastor will read a verse and you'll read a verse as you read through scripture. And so you respond with that. People are probably less familiar with responsive singing. In fact, uh, um, some of you might say, I don't know that I've ever sung a song responsibly like that. And I would tell you that you have for sure. And in fact, one that is based out of, or at least centered in, the Psalm 113 that we read tonight. Let me see if you can finish the song. Uh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. That was weak, but finished. <laughs> But uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you know the song or have heard it, you know that, uh, that it was, it's a responsive song. And in fact, when you look at the 113th Psalm, like most of the Hallel Psalms, it begins with that phrase, praise ye the Lord, praise all you servants of the Lord. And that little chorus, uh, interestingly enough, is a chorus that it's not only sung uh, responsively, but I, I call it this, I call it an interpretive song. And the reason I call it that is because uh, it begins, as you know, with the phrase hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. But how many of you know that hallelujah is not really an English word? That hallelujah is not, uh, 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 actually it's a Hebrew word. And it's a series of words that are put together. And, and it is these words in the Hebrew language. It is the word hallel uh, with a suffix u behind it. And then the word yah together. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And those words mean this exactly, hallel with the suffix u. Hallel means to praise or to extol. The suffix u is a third person, really, that means you all, right? You all uh, uh, praise the Lord. And then the word yah, of course, means the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That's the word hallelujah. Now, the interpretive part is this, that when they sing that chorus, we would sing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And you could rightly ask, you know, if, if you'd been asleep under a rock for a while, uh, what does that mean? And maybe there are some who would say, well, I know the word, but what does it mean? Well, the answer is in the response, isn't it? Because hallelujah is praise ye the Lord. Amen. And so it's interpretive. Let me tell you something else that's interesting about it. 
And maybe someone here tonight will be able, uh, or someone watching will be able to disagree, but I doubt it, and I've not found one yet. But in every language that we've been able to inquire, every language, the word hallelujah, or praise you the Lord, is hallelujah. It may have some different accents. There may be some uh, vowel differences in pronunciation. If you're in Alabama, you might say hallelujah, right? And if, uh, if you're in, uh, in Montana, where I come from, you might say hallelujah. And if you're uh, speaking the Spanish or Korean language, like my wife, you would probably say alleluia, right? But it's all the same word. And it's interesting to me, we have sung that course over time. We did it in Vacation Bible School some years ago. And uh, we, of course, did it in English. We did it in Korean. We did it in Russian. We did it in Spanish. I don't know, there were a couple of other languages that were there. We've, we've uh, sung uh, this song, uh, that course in Nepali. Uh, we've sung it in German. Uh, we've just sung it in language after language. We have never uh, uh, sung it, sang it, whatever, however you want to say it, in Chinese that I know of. Uh, but I'm sure it has Sheshe in there somewhere. I don't know for sure. But, uh, but in any case, uh, everywhere you go, that word is universal. Hallelujah means praise you the Lord. In fact, my wife uh, told me a story that was related to her of a, of a Korean missionary uh, or a Korean pastor going to a mission field and uh, and uh, the person picking him up, the missionary picking him up, uh, had never seen him and never recognized him and uh, didn't have a sign, didn't have the information that said his name. And he's standing at the airport thinking, how in the world am I going to be able to identify this man that I'm supposed to pick up? And so the story goes that he stood there as people were coming out saying, hallelujah, 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 until they were connected there by the very word that means praise you the Lord. Why do I tell you that? Well, in part because of what we'll learn in this psalm, but in part because I want you to understand this, that the God who confused languages left one word for sure common to all. And it is the word that means praise ye the Lord. Because you see, God is very serious and very worthy of praise. And the 113th Psalm, I believe, as clear as any place in the Bible teaches us about how and why the amount and the volume, if you will, the robustness of praise that we as believers are to offer to our God. Look at it with me and what we learn. The first thing that I want you to see is in some of the phrases. The first phrase is this. It's the phrase, praise you the Lord. And I want you to understand tonight that there are some group of people, this psalm will identify them, who are giving a direct commandment in that phrase. That phrase is an imperative phrase. It's a phrase, in other words, that means God is telling you to do something. It's a commandment. And God's commandment is praise ye the Lord. It's his instructions to us. He goes on and tells us how we're to do that. It says this, or who's to do it. It says praise ye the Lord. Next phrase, praise O ye servants of the Lord. And it really identifies to us who that commandment to praise the Lord is given to. That commandment is given to the servants of the Lord. And so they're a particular group of people who are identified by their relationship with the Lord, who are commanded by the Lord to give him praise. Praise ye the Lord. Who? Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Uh, you say, well, preacher, how do I know if I'm a servant of the Lord? If you don't know, I, I don't know that I could uh, identify it for you, but could I say this to you? Those who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who are, who are uh, the, the blood-bought children of God, are the servants of God. And so if you're here tonight or you're listening tonight and you're born again, if you've received Christ as your Savior, this commandment to praise and all that's included into it, in it is applicable directly, given directly to you. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. The next phrase says this in the 113th Psalm. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Uh, okay, well, how do we do that exactly? Well, he tells us this. Praise ye the name of the Lord. That we're not to give. Can I say this? I think it's important in our age in particular. That we are never called to give some sort of exaltation to the man upstairs. We're not called to generically praise our God. 
But when God gives us instruction to praise, we're to give very specific praise. We are to praise him by his name. This uh, passage really makes it clear that the Hallmark greeting card company is not really giving praise to God, amen? Because they will use any name in any generic form. And could I just say it while I'm not against uh, uh, a lot of things? Uh, those who would tell you that you need to seek a higher power are not pointing you to the praise of the Lord. Friend, we do not worship a power. We worship a person. His name is Jehovah. We know him as Jesus Christ. He is alive. He has always been and always will be, and you can have a personal relationship with him tonight. Praise ye the Lord. Who? You, servant of God. How? Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Then there's this, verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God marks out the time of praise. And I want you to notice in verse 2 that there's a definite starting point for praise from this time forth and forevermore. So in other words, there's something that takes place in a person's life where God says, now for the rest of your life, I want you to give me praise. What do you suppose that starting point is? Well, I would suggest it's when you become a servant of the Lord. And that really what God says in verse two is, is that from the day that you receive Christ, that you're born again, and you enter in uh, through the blood of the lamb into the family of God, that there is an expectation from God that you, his servant, would lift him up by his name and extol or exalt him, and that it's to never end. That every day of your life as a born-again believer, according to this, is really to be marked by giving praise to your God. He's setting boundaries, isn't he? And really the boundaries are precise on the beginning end, and they're endless from there on out. Isn't that right? That there's no expiration once you're born again on the praise that God expects, really, from your life. Look what else he says in verse number uh, three. Uh, it says this, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Check this out. This idea of praising God from the day that, you're, uh, that you enter in as a servant of God forevermore is not something where you get out of bed in the morning and you say three praise ye the Lord's and check that box. Notice what he says. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised you would understand that, that they would have understood. When this psalm was written, uh, the people that first heard it and sang it were a people that were, uh, that were completely living in an agricultural society. It's weird. Uh, they didn't have light switches in ancient Israel. It's weird that way. Uh, but uh, probably because there were no lights, okay? Uh, and listen, they pretty much got up with the sun and went to bed with the sun uh, because of the sort of life that, and culture that they lived in. And so here's literally what he said to them. Listen, from the time you get out of bed in the morning until the time you go to bed at night, from the day that you enter in as a born-again believer forevermore, your life is to be marked and you to be identified by the praise that you give to your Savior. It's the expectation of our God that from the beginning of our new life, to, to forever, from the beginning of our day to the end of the day. No matter where you are on the face of the planet, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. From the far east to the far west, all throughout the day, if you're a blood-bought child of the king, you're to be giving praise to the name of that king uh, that is there in heaven. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Uh, praise, uh, pardon me, praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Uh, from the blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name, don't you love this phrase, is to be praised. The, these things that I've just told you are not my interpretation of this passage. They are the very clear commandment of God related to us in this. Is to be praised is another, uh, another phrase that says this is what I expect you to do. How many of you uh, just listening might think, man, that's an awful lot of praise. 
I mean, literally, God says that our life is to be filled with. It's not rote or uh, vain repetition. We don't walk down the street going in some you know, bland form, praise you the Lord, praise you the Lord, praise you the Lord. It's that, that the response we have to everything that comes is to give praise to our God. All day, forevermore. That is a significant volume of praise if we're obedient, isn't it? And so some would ask this question. Well, that's a lot of praise. Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable for God to command us to give that much praise? Now, I know that, that you would say, most likely, if you're listening, and certainly if you walk with God, oh yeah, of course, that's normal. Although I think it's easier to say that than we often live that. But, but God doesn't leave it up to the whim or, or circumstances of the individual. Because what he really does in the rest of this psalm is he explains to you and I why this is perfectly reasonable, that there's nothing excessive, and that it should be the natural response of our life. And the two primary reasons are because of who he is and because of what he's done and does. And when you look here with me in verse number four, there are a couple of things that we learn that really are spectacular about our God. And it says this in two phrases, the Lord is high above all nations. I want you to understand that the idea of being high among the nations is really not, not a reference to a physical location. Here's what it's a reference to. It's a, rever it's a reference, pardon me, to the sovereignty of God. And what he says is, is that all of the sovereign entities on the world, any of them that would exist, and that's what nations are. Nations are sovereign entities. The United States of America has sovereignty in the United States. The state of California, as a state, has a measure of sovereignty within the United States. That's what states and political bodies and things like that exercise is sovereignty. That means that they have the right to make their own laws and to execute those laws and do those things as they will together within the contents or the, within the construct of their borders. It's sovereignty. And there are nations that I would say are more powerful as sovereign nations than other nations. I think that's reasonable. I think that it's true that, uh, you know, that there are nations that we would not want to go to war with because of their might and others that we would maybe be less hesitant uh, to maybe impose our sovereignty on because we of our might. And so there are differing degrees, maybe not of absolute sovereignty, but of the might or the ability to exercise or enforce that sovereignty amongst sovereign entities. In fact, our founders understood that when they were writing in the Declaration of Independence. They addressed the fact that we were standing up as a sovereign nation among sovereign nations with power, might, and the ability to enforce things. But verse four says, the Lord is high, above all nations. Let me try to explain that to you. It says this, that God's sovereignty is high above all sovereignties on the face of this earth. Let me tell you, tell you who your God is. He is the all-sovereign God. Now, now, here's what else is interesting that you should understand. This is not talking about all sovereignties as in each sovereignty. This is really talking about the collective of all sovereignties. That if you took all sovereign nations, all sovereign powers and entities on the face of this planet, and you put them all together, you, you made one big sovereign pie, that the sovereignty of that together, of all the combined powers of the earth, that your God is high above that. That his sovereignty, it's not close. He doesn't eke out sovereignty. It is high above that. I mean, God's sovereignty is, is there and the sovereignty collective of all of the, uh, of the sovereign powers of the earth is on the floor and God's is exceedingly high above that. That's really the idea of that phrase. That there's no sovereignty, there's no group of sovereignties, there's, there's no way that you could pile together enough power, enough might, enough will, enough political uh, 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 things on the earth to ever begin to approach the sovereignty of God. That at the thought of his mind, in the whisper of his breath, the sovereignty of God outrules every combined powerful body that exists. 
Now, those who might be skeptical should look forward in history because we have the benefit of having history pre-written in the prophetic books of the Bible. And in them, at the end of the book of Revelation, we learn about a time when all of the nations of the earth combine their sovereignty together in an effort to overthrow the King of Kings, to deny him. We call it things like the Battle of Armageddon for good reason, it's called that in scripture. But I'll remind you of what happens there. What will happen, history pre-written, what will happen is, is that when they gather themselves together and they besiege Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and they will, that Jesus Christ will return. And he will return with the armies of heaven, the believers, you and I, who were before this about seven years raptured out, and who, uh, if we are still alive at that point, and who are now returning with him, uh, riding behind him, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and it will, it will split in two from east to west, the north pile and the south pile, so there'll be a, 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 a channel through there from east to west. And those besieged uh, Israelites in Jerusalem uh, that are now a remnant will escape into the wilderness uh, where they will uh, be uh, succored by, kept by God until he brings them back. But then Jesus will do this. With his armies, he'll ride off there. He'll ride to Basra, one of the prophets tells us. He'll ride really a loop around all those valleys and wadis and all that would, uh, that would uh, you know, lead up to Jerusalem. And he'll ultimately ride into to Armageddon, the, the Valley of Jezreel. And when he rides to the Valley of Jezreel, where I believe the headquarters of all those armies will be, that great combination, that with the words of his mouth, he will destroy the armies. No, not disillusion them and not demoralize them. In fact, here's what it says, that he'll ride into the valley of Jehoshaphat uh, uh, on his way back to take his throne in, in Jerusalem, and the blood will be up to the bridle of the horses. Friend, that's destruction. It'll take them years to bury all of the bodies and to burn all of the weapons. He's a sovereign God. There's no power or combinations of power that can even begin to approach the power of our God. And your response and mine is to be this response. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. He's a sovereign God. But there's another phrase in verse four. It's even, um, I don't know that it's more interesting, but it's certainly as interesting because it says this, and his glory above the heavens. It's interesting, you might debate what his glory means. We talk a lot about glorifying God, but really this verse would give reference to the manifestation, I think, of the presence of God. Like we would see the Shekinah glory cloud in the wilderness and the pillar of fire. We would see the glory of God represented at the tabernacle and the temple by the smoke that would rise up uh, from the altar day and night through, uh, throughout the day the manifestation of the presence and glory and might of God. But this verse says that his glory is above the heavens. So you have to think about that for a minute. This isn't a, this isn't a linear description, okay? So uh, we don't have uh, heavens piled on top of each other in a column. This is a volumetric description. So the Bible describes three heavens, and we understand the first heaven to really be our atmosphere, if you will, I'll just that simple, the place where airplanes fly and, and birds fly, right, and uh, you know, uh, drones crash, and I don't know, and you breathe. You breathe in a little bit of the first heaven uh, every second or so, don't you? It's our atmosphere. And you understand that there's no place that you can go on earth where there is not the first heaven. And it extends out to a certain uh, distance. I don't know the number of that distance, but we see it represented in our space activity when uh, they try to re-enter the atmosphere. And if it's not done at precisely the right speed and angle, it's said that those great spaceships will bounce off of it out into outer space. It's a very clearly defined place, this first heaven, but it is volumetric. And I'm very glad about that, given what we do. I mean, you know, I'd hate to be driving from, uh, you know, I don't know wherever we might drive from, from uh, Oklahoma into Oregon and hit the edge of the atmosphere. 
I mean, I'd be there one moment singing and the next moment, moment gasping for breath. I mean, I think I can uh, say tonight uh, for you and with you that you're very grateful that this is not a linear measurement, but that it's a volumetric measurement. And of course, the second heaven is uh, outer space. That's how we would most simply define that. And that too is not a linear measurement, but it's a volumetric. The reason why is, is it says that his glory is above the heavens. And it would seem to me that if the heavens extend, uh, you know, in a full uh, sphere around our planet, that the only way that it could be above it is to be above it everywhere. And the only way it could do that is if it filled that to overflowing. And so the first heavens, it says, is filled with the glory of God. And then the second, outer space, or as Buzz Lightyear puts it, to infinity and beyond. I was preaching one time in a church, and I was preaching on this psalm, in fact, uh, and a guy brought me a book. It was a book, I don't know what the real name of them is. You can buy them in all the bookstores pretty cheap. They have them on different things, birds of prey and military things. And, and this one was on stars and all of that. And so it's a book that's, uh, you know, about this high, probably, I don't know, and about that wide. You open it up, it's got great big pictures of stuff on it. And he brings me a picture, so it fills the entire page, and, uh, except for just a little white border around it. And that page is, is let's just call it a star field, Okay. So it would be like if you would just go out away from the city, no, uh, no lights around you at all, on a perfectly clear night, lay down on your back, I don't know if you've ever done this, look up in the sky, and all you will see is like, pow. And in the middle of all of that, there's a, a red arrow, just a little red arrow, and the red arrow points at a little like speck of white on that, representing light, that really if the arrow wasn't there, you wouldn't even notice that this speck was on the page. And then of course there's a caption that describes what this arrow is pointing to. If I were to ask, you might say, well it's probably pointing to earth. The answer would be no, that's not it at all. How about the sun? No, not it at all. Let me first tell you what this picture is. This picture is a slice of a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. And the Hubble Space Telescope, apparently, uh, as it's doing the business that they had it up there to do, is that it sort of revolves and takes pictures. We would call them panoramic on our phone today. And it takes those pictures and then stitches them together and gives them the sort of picture of, of, of outer space that's seeable through that. And this page, completely filled with the little imperceptible point and the red arrow is just a slice of that. So it really is, as we would understand, the vastness of, our, uh, of, our, of creation and outer space. It really is but a sliver of the second heaven. Now here's what the red arrow was pointing at. The Milky Way. The Milky Way, as you know, is the galaxy in which we live. The earth resides, not even the greatest planet in the, in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is a galaxy with a sun and a moon and planets, and some of them, they change the name of planets, and they name them after Disney characters. I've never figured that one out. But. And our Milky Way, the galaxy that we've yet to explore or even completely cross, that seems so vast from where we sit is but a small, imperceptible point of light in a sliver of creation. That tells you that the second heaven is immense. And here's what verse four says. His glory is above the heavens. And would you understand that this describes who our God is? That he is high above all combined sovereignties, all-powerful, but that he's also immense beyond description. That he's able to be everywhere because of his immensity, because our God is indescribably immense. 
He's worthy of praise tonight because of who he is. We serve a God, I, I think that we have cheapened superlative terms like awesome, you know, awesome means uh, they didn't burn your, your hamburger today. That's awesome, man. It almost feels cheap uh, to call God an awesome God. You know, you sing that chorus if you sing it, our God is an awesome God, and I'm like, what, he's not burnt bread? I mean, it's got to be bigger than that. I don't know that I have a superlative to, uh, to describe a God who, who's described here in these words simply that his glory is above the heavens. Those heavens, they are a volume, not a line. And that means that he's so immense that he fills to overflowing that which we can't even grasp the immensity of with our mind. What a God we serve. In fact, it's so much uh, an overwhelming description of him that the psalmist under inspiration writes in the next verse really a rhetorical question after God is described as sovereign above all combined sovereignties and immense beyond our ability to comprehend it says who is like the Lord our God who dwelleth on high and the answer to that is there is none like the Lord God is worthy of praise praise ye the Lord praise all ye servants of the Lord Praise ye the name of the Lord. Uh, from the rise, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, uh, his name is to be praised. Reasonable or unreasonable, I would say it's marginally reasonable that it ought to be minimal concerning or considering who he is. That the God who inhabits you, the God who, re, who will redeem you, uh, the God who will walk with you, the God who said, I'll never leave nor forsake you, is so immense and so powerful that it ought to envelop you in praise, that you ought to recognize and realize that COVID can come and go, and that the government can fall and rise, and that, uh, that turmoil can come and go, and yet there's no place you'll be that God is not sovereign and in charge of that and present. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth in The psalm doesn't stop there because it changes direction from who he is to what he does. So you have this all-sovereign, all-powerful, indescribably immense God, natural attributes, who then it says this of, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. So the word humbleth doesn't mean this. Well, I, I mean, I guess I will. If they need me, I'll go. That word really means that he stooped down. That really it would give this idea that God gets down on his hands and knees so that he can perfectly observe everything that's going on with his creation. Some of you may, may not uh, be able to recognize this, but some of you might. I, I don't know if you might remember a time they had a hard contacts. Most contacts today are soft and you can wear them over and over again, but they used to make hard contacts and I never had a pair. I didn't even uh, wear glasses until I, I'm not gonna tell you when, but... Uh, But they were very expensive and, and uh, they, they had great power. My, my recollection of them as a high school uh, kid was that they had the power to stop the most closely uh, scoring basketball game for the state championship ever. A few seconds left in the game, the score tied and our team inbounds the ball and starts bouncing down the court. And as they're driving down the court trying to score the winning basket, someone on the court says this, contact! And everybody stopped. And everybody recognized that what had happened is, is that the contact had come out of someone's eyes uh, through activity or uh, contact uh, with someone else of some degree and had fallen onto the gym floor. And if they stepped on it, of course, it would be destroyed and very expensive. And literally everyone stopped on the court and, and they got down where they were at and they began on their hands and knees to search around until someone says, I've got it. 
And they give it back to the person and, you know, clean it off good. <clears throat> I mean, grow up, it's just spit. Stick it back in their eye, ref blows the whistle, they finish the game. That's the picture. The guy got down on his hands and knees because he wanted to see what was going on. He said, but God is everywhere and he's all powerful and he knows the things he does, but he's also filled with mercy and grace and love. Because it doesn't say that he just got down and reported, but notice it says this, that he humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. And when he got down there, here's what he found out. He found out that the crown of creation, that the ones made in his image and likeness, that mankind had now taken their lives because of sin, and they had immersed their lives in what's described here as dust piles and dunghills. It's the mess and disgustingness of iniquity. It's what you were and I was before we met Christ. And it's what we can be again if we're not very careful. And it says here, look at what it says, that he reached into those places and that he, verse seven, that he raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. The absolute destruction, the mess of life. You say, preacher, I was raised in a Christian home and I've really never done anything super bad. I don't think I've been around the dust pile or dunghill. Friend, let me tell you something. I was raised in a Christian home. I was in church before I knew I was in church and I desperately needed a redeemer. Because it's not about my circumstances, it's about my heart. And my heart is as dark and as evil and as deceitful as the most vile, criminal, or defiled person you'd ever meet. And so is yours. But we have a God who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and immense beyond description who got down and found me there and you there and reached out his hand and said, if you want, I'll take you out of this. And when you reached out for him, or if you will, he takes you by the hand, takes your life out of that, cleans the dust and the dung off of your life, makes it as if you'd never sinned. But notice this. He doesn't just take you out and set you on the edge. He sets you among princes, even the princes of his people. That he transforms you from a beggar in a dust pile to a prince in the throne room of God. And that the book of Ephesians says that if we're born again, that we set together in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. We have been raised up, that, that we're no longer citizens here, that this world is not our home. We're passing through this because our mailbox is at the throne room of God and we reside there. Our God changes eternity. Our God reaches into your life. He changes your nature. He imparts his own perfect holy nature into the heart of a repentant sinner who will call upon him for grace and mercy. This is no simple religious transaction. Let's throw all of them back into the dust pile and dunghill where they belong. This is a life-changing thing. This is something that only God can do. And when you would call upon him, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm telling you that he's already got his hand extended. And when you call upon him, he takes you out of there. He cleans you off. He changes you back into what he created you to be in character. And he sets you in a place where you'll never be in a dust pile and dunghill. Again, God changes your forever. He changes your destiny, your home. He changes your character, your nature. And he does it forever. Do you know that Weight Watchers can't touch that? There's no reformation. There's no religion. There's no self-abuse or sacrifice. There's no creed. There's nothing in the entire created universe in all of its immensity that can reach in to the place you were born, take you out, change you, and forever set you 
in the throne room of God. God alone can do that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You would think the psalm would end there, but it doesn't. Because God does more. Look at what it says. It says in verse number nine, he maketh a barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. And let me just give you a little bit of Bible here. This verse and the verse before it really come out of or, or are in 1 Samuel uh, chapter two. Uh, the first verse, verse nine or eight, is in verses seven and eight. And verse nine is not a direct quote, but it relates what happens there. And that passage is the passage of Hannah, who was barren. And she suffered because of that. You know that her husband had two wives and the other one was fruitful and she was barren. Don't get hung up there. Because she went to Shiloh and she went before God. She poured her heart out to her God. So much so that as she was praying, Eli came and told her she needed to quit drinking. That probably won't happen to you here. I mean, I suppose it could, but. But she wasn't drinking. She said to him, my father, I, this is not true. I'm simply desiring of God that he would do in my life now what only God can do. And she went home and conceived and bore the child Samuel. The child who was given to the Lord all of his life. The one who finally heard God speak when God hadn't spoken in so long. You remember that story. It says that the word of God was precious in those days. That means this, that it wasn't forthcoming. There was no prophet giving prophecy. They weren't hearing the voice of God. Eli and his sons and all of those, there really was just nothing going on. And one night in the middle of the night, God called out in a still small voice, Samuel. That Samuel. The one who anointed David to be king. And really almost by proxy or through that line, anointed the line from which Jesus would come, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God did that. God took a barren woman and made her the joyful mother of children, a joyful keeper of the home. Why is that here? Because God doesn't only change forever. God wants to work in his might in your life today. He wants to transform your life today. He wants to take broken lives and make them whole. He wants to take defiled lives and make them holy. That's what God does today. God is not just one who offers a token for eternity for your, uh, for your uh, obedience on earth. God is one who wants to walk in you and walk with you and change your life and change your mind and, and, and heal your home and heal your relationship and do all of those things that no one else can do but God because he will change your forever, but he will also change your today. He's all powerfully sovereign. He's indescribably immense. And he is good beyond description as well. So compassionate, so loving that he would take his holiness and robe it in humanity's flesh. and Crawl around until he goes to a cross and becomes sin for us who knew no sin. And would raise from the dead in victory over death and hell and the grave and would say, I want to make you a prince if you'll trust me. And he'd say, man, that's a lot. And he'd say, but that's not all. I want to inhabit your days. I want to change you from an old grumpy curmudgeon into a joyful praiser of my name. I want to change 
your life as you live it. Friend, are you overwhelmed? Here's the deal, that God wants to just walk with you and take all of the pressure on your life and he wants to carry it with you. He wants you to cast your burden and walk with him. He changes our lives today. He changes our eternity and he changes our life today. And there's one more phrase in this psalm. Look at it. Praise ye the Lord. All that can be said, all that can be done, when you recognize who he is and experience what he does, there's only one thing that can be the testimony of your life. Praise ye the Lord. It is not only reasonable that we would praise the Lord from a definite starting point forever. That in every response in our life, from the, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, it is beyond reasonable that those moments and events and responses and days would be marked by praise from our life and from our lips because of who our God is and what he has done. And I would tell you this, I think it's high time that we stopped passing by God, observing him and moving on. And we started maybe this night of recognizing and seeing and be reminded of who he is and what he does. And before we just move on, wherever we're at, that we would slip out of our chairs and we would get on our knees and we would begin to worship and praise this God right now. It's been too long for some of us since in humility and brokenness we have humbled ourselves before God and said, God, you are worthy of my praise and my life because of who you are and what he's done. Oh, I know we have the creed and we know the sayings. I'm talking about a humble, broken person who's a servant of God, who recognized the immense greatness of God tonight and the immense grace and mercy and wonder and can't even now hardly hold back from bowing before their God and saying, oh God, oh God, oh God. And maybe the words won't even come. If you'll really see him as he is, you may be able to not even put together a sentence, but you could get on your knees tonight and until God begins to still your heart, you could say this, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord.